Hey everyone, Stu here. Just wanted to preface today's show by describing what it is we're doing here in December. Um, I was supposed to be releasing a special with M. Rahman to describe the behaviour change tool that they're releasing to, to help design behaviour change interventions. But due to the election, that didn't happen. And so what we're releasing instead is this conversation that we had with um, Professor Mike Kelly, who's the ex-director of NICE. Uh, and this was a fascinating interview, which is why we're releasing it as a special, because Mike has a breadth of knowledge of the public health industry in general, how behaviour change works and the behavioural and the social sciences, alongside a deep knowledge of the way this plays out politically, having been involved for 10 years at NICE. One of the things that I really struggled to do, though, was get this under an hour. So what I've done is split it into two parts. The first part is about how Mike started out in lecturing in sociology and then moving through various different universities and university positions, then into NICE and doing battle with the advertising, alcohol and food industries, as well as the media for heading up the nanny state, as they put it. And then the other stuff that we talk about in this first part is really about um, how evidence plays out in the political arena, um, followed by uh, just an offhand but 10-minute discussion about um, where public health came from in this country and how it's moved from a social model to a biomedical model and now it's moving back into sort of a mixed model where social is becoming more important again. Mike is actually a sociologist at heart so a lot of the, a lot of the chat we have comes from a sociological perspective but I think it's really fascinating to hear how that plays out in the political world and that's what you've got mainly in part one. In part two, we move more on to the behaviour change science part, which is more about choice architecture. Um, Mike talks about uh, how he ended up inadvertently having dinner with Daniel Kahneman, um, which is a fascinating story. Um, how he worked with Marmot and uh, the World Health Organisation, as well as the, the direction of travel of the current public health industry, moving into a much more systems and whole systems uh, approach to, to all of these different public health issues as well as um, how NICE guidance gets produced, uh, where we are as a, in the UK academically uh, compared with the rest of the world, and how that plays out again in the p political sphere, uh, and then moving on to, to finish on inequalities, which is obviously one of the most important elements of public health. So I think across the two shows, it's really interesting to hear Mike's views and experiences because they both have the academic side, but then they have a really pragmatic element in terms of it being played out in a political arena. So I hope you enjoy it. Really looking forward to hearing some comments back from, uh, from listeners on, on uh, what you thought of the show, uh, what you thought of Mike's views and, and experiences. Um, and just before we start, I wanted to, to reiterate that, that this is being produced on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network. Um, and, and there's the annual conference coming up in, in February, which we really hope you, you go and sign up to. Uh, get a membership whilst you do it. It's, it's actually cheaper to get a membership and attend the conference than it is just to attend without a membership. So there's a little bit of um, a decoy effect in there, perhaps, from a behavioural perspective. Um, but it's only £25 to join if you're working and £10 if you're a student or if you're not working. So get yourself over to bsphn.org.uk and, uh, and join up today. Over to the show. Professor Mike Kelly is the Senior Visiting Fellow in the Department of Public Health and Primary Care at the Institute of Public Health and a member of St John's College at the University of Cambridge. Between 2005 and 2014, when he retired, he was the Director of the Centre for Public Health at the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence, also known as NICE. From 2005 to 2007, he directed the methodology workstream for the World Health Organisation's Commission on the Social Determinants of Health. His research interests include the prevention of non-communicable disease, living with chronic illness, health inequalities, health-related behaviour change, end-of-life care, dental public health, the relationship between evidence and policy, and the methods and philosophy of evidence-based medicine. Mike, you've operated at the highest levels in bringing evidence into practice, and I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you very much. That is also an incredibly long list of things that you've got a research interest in. Yep. <laughs> okay, is it, are these things you worked across for your whole career, or all these different things? Um, pretty much. Um, there's one thing that's not on there, which is end-of-life care, which is what I'm engaged in as well now in Cambridge. But um, yes, I've been um, active in a variety of research fields, 
linked to public health and behaviour change and social matters more generally uh, over a, yeah, a long career now. And um, in that long career, obviously, one has an opportunity to do different things. And I've been very lucky in the colleagues I've worked with and the opportunities that have presented themselves over the years um, and been able to make a bit of a contribution in some of those fields. It's brilliant. Um, and I know you start, so I want to go back a little bit to where you started. I know mm-hmm. you started out in sociology, which is which is great because it's something I'm really keen on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to hear a bit more about what, 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 how you started out and what took you on your journey towards NICE and beyond. Okay, well, I read uh, sociology, economics and politics as an undergraduate at the University of York doing the old, what they used to call the social science degree, uh, specialising in sociology. Uh, I then went off and did a master's in sociology at the University of Leicester in industrial sociology, and that got me very interested in issues of equality, inequality, and social class. Um, That led me to an interest in health inequalities, and during my first teaching, full-time teaching job in Dundee, I began to develop that, along with other stuff I was doing in uh, what I came to see as medical sociology. I did my PhD in Dundee in in the Department of Psychiatry there, And after a while, I moved on from Dundee to Glasgow University, where I led the Master of Public Health degree uh, at Glasgow University and worked in the broad field of public health in that city and within that health board, Greater Glasgow Health Board. From there, I moved back into academe full-time as a university head of department in London. Um, And then I took a decision when I was... um, I'd been doing that for nearly 10 years that... I wanted to do something more than administer a university department. I wanted to get back into research proper and, if possible, the uh, interface with research and policy. And a job at the Health Development Agency, as it was called, came up as Director of Research. I applied for it and was successful and appointed. The Health Development Agency was, in fact, the successor body to the old Health Education Authority and, before Mm -hmm. that, um, the Health or some other name before, the Health Education Authority anyway, mm-hmm. which ran all the stuff on AIDS prevention, all those famous advertisements about the gravestones and all that stuff. Well, the Health Development Agency took on that role and I was there for five years and we began to... We were given the role by a government um, to develop the principles of applying the evidence-based method which had become was becoming more and more central in clinical medicine, applying the principles of evidence-based medicine and the evidence-based approach to public health. Mm. Um, The R&D strategy, the early part of the new century, had identified that as a need and the HDA, along with a couple of other organisations nationally, uh, took on that role. And for five years, we busied ourselves doing that. At the end of that five-year period, there was one of the periodic NHS reorganisations and I and much of my team at the HDA had been working on this evidence-based stuff, uh, found ourselves transferred into NICE. And NICE had a slightly different role to the one we'd had at the Health Development Agency, which was not just to review the evidence and how to find the evidence and how to present the evidence, but to develop guidelines, public health guidelines for the National Health Service and for a broader constituency, including the utilities, industry, government, uh, and so on, the education sector, um, uh, and, and so on. And so we found ourselves doing something which really no one had ever done before, at least quite in that way. Um, Some of this type of work had been done at CDC, the Centre for Disease Control in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't very much worldwide. There was certainly no book we could go to to tell us what to do. So we brought with us our experience with the HDA and we began working on a series of guidelines uh, about the prevention principally of non-communicable disease, but some um, infectious disease too, like HIV, Mm -hmm. uh, hepatitis, tuberculosis, and so on, which are clear public health issues as well as clinical ones. And in the 10 years I was there, we did 64 of those guidelines, I think, um, and several that came out after I, I had left. And so that was a really exciting time because we were doing something, as I say, which no one had really done before, um... We were right in the heart of the cockpit of policy making in mm. public health because we li- we were directly interfacing with the Department of Health in England, directly interfacing with the various royal colleges, directly interfacing, of course, with the academics 
and scientists who were producing the evidence, mm-hmm. um, but also we were interfacing with those parts of the public sector and private sector who were affected by the recommendations we were making. It was uh, pretty controversial at times, one mm-hmm. would have to say, because you're dealing with issues like alcohol consumption, uh, drug misuse, um, behaviour change, and so on and so forth. And um, we found ourselves at times in um, you know, some, some pretty tricky places with the advertising industry, the alcohol industry, bits of the food industry, um, and so on. Um, and indeed, in times at times, government too. But and I've heard you say before that you you um, you in the media you you sort of had to do battle almost with the media and you came out quite bruised from that. What, what did you mean when you? Well, bruised might be. I don't think it's exactly the right word, but it was bruising, mm. uh, metaphorically, so to speak. But what I'm, what that was all about is, of course. Um, if you're in the business of trying to prevent non-communicable disease, uh, you're actually in the business, to some extent, of advising people on how they should live their lives. Mm. Now, you're doing it for the best of reasons because you know that smoking kills, you know that excessive alcohol consumption will give you liver disease, um, you know that um, overconsumption of calories will give you, um, will make you obese and potentially put you at risk of diabetes and heart disease and so on all this stuff is known but what it does mean is you are it 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 sometimes can be seen that you're kind of taking some sort of moral high ground Mm -hmm. and telling people how they should live their lives um now that was became during the period we were doing all of this uh, identified or labeled as nanny status and this is a nanny state telling people what they should and shouldn't do and while it's absolutely legitimate to be criticised for that position, and I, you know, in a democracy, that's exactly how it should be. Um, but um, we did find ourselves on the front pages of many national newspapers, um, not always in the most approving of um, ways. I mean, basically, the libertarian argument is people should be left alone to live their lives as they wish, mm. um, to do as they please perhaps so long as it doesn't harm anybody else. Um, but clearly, uh, some newspapers took the, and some politicians took the view that we, we exceeded that um, boundary and we were trying to uh, do, do that. So uh, we were trying to do more than simply advising. And therefore, you know, I spent a lot of time um, in press conferences, a lot of time um, doing radio, television, um, being grilled on the Today programme and all this kind of thing. And it was um, it was it was really good. Um, I, <laughs> oh, I, oh, I thought I, you were going to say the opposite. No, not at all. Yeah. I I enjoyed it enormously. Um, the challenge of trying to be both on the one hand doing the best you can for population health, and at the same time working within a highly um, political uh, environment um, actually is very very exciting. And um, those 10 years I spent at NICE, I just enjoyed every moment of it. Um, even the difficult moments, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, was, it was exciting and um, challenging, of course. But, um, you know, in the end, I think we achieved um, quite a bit in terms of, first of all, developing ways to do this um, effectively and then to try and deliver that um, effectively. Uh, so it was, it was great. Yeah, wow. Well, yeah, I think you've got to have the, the right temperament and, and sort of enjoy that arena. Um, it wouldn't be for everyone, would it, being in that? No, um, and good. I didn't know I did either. No. When I was a professor of sociology, um, it never occurred to me that that's how I would... <laughs> or that one had the appetite for this sort of thing. But I, I felt that... Um, I felt that the weight of evidence the weight of scientific evidence in these matters on a very serious point is very clear um there are uh, clear risks associated with certain patterns of living um they are costly to the individual in terms of their health they are costly to that individual's family um particularly if it results in early death and they are costly to society so you and i as taxpayers are picking up footing the bill um, as well for for these for, for things when they get 
too excessive and therefore it did seem to me that it was the it was the right thing to do um one would have had to change one's mind of course had the evidence suggested something different but it didn't no. the evidence you know on you know alcohol consumption um and so on is absolutely in, in my view incontrovertible mm. um, but i mean even even when the evidence isn't well, even with incontrovertible evidence, that doesn't mean that um, things are necessarily going to change straight away, does it? I, I, I was um, thinking of a talk I heard you give about smoking in, mm-hmm. and, and the paper that came out in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And it still took, what, 40 years odd, 30, 40 years before... It's nearly 60. Well, I mean, before people even started to take it seriously, and now we're at a stage where one in six people are smoking, and that's a, that's a good place to be. It is. It's an all-time low um, in England presently, um, and that has to be counted as a real public health success. Mm. But we knew um, when Dolan Hill, they published their first paper in 1950, then a dif- more definitive paper in 52, and then by the time we get to 1962 with the a report of the Royal College of Physicians, the evidence of the links between um, exposure to cigarette smoke and damage to health um, was was you know unequivocal. Although mm. there was a lot of pushback from the tobacco industry and some other scientists, but you know the weight of evidence was very very um, compelling. But evidence on its own doesn't change anything. That's very important. Mm. Nor indeed producing guidelines at Nice or anywhere else doesn't change anything. Mm. Um, there has to be a gradual process of um, population awareness uh, and that takes many forms. Guidelines and information are part of it, but there, there's more. When you look at the success of uh, the behaviour change related to cigarette smoking, it's not one thing. It's been about the early days of information mm-hmm. um, and health education on the dangers of smoking. Um, it's also been about the banning of advertising um, making cigarettes um, as difficult to see for children, for example, as possible. Yeah. It's been about price control um, and taxation. Um, it's been about now managing the retail environment so that cigarettes are pretty well invisible mm-hmm. um, uh, in the retail environment. Um, it's been about a long process of public understanding of the risk, which, you know, depending on how you count it, it's 40, 60 years. So by the time the smoking ban came in place in England and previously in Ireland and in Scotland, um, the population was we were ready for it. We'd, we'd yeah. passed a kind of tipping point, if you like. Yeah. Um, and it was extraordinary, really, I thought. The day uh, after the ban came in, the compliance levels looked to be 100%. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was just most extraordinary... Um, Thing, but that couldn't have happened if they'd tried that in 1952. No, no. Um, because you know, 80% of the population or whatever it was were smokers, um, including decision makers. In fact, and doctors, well, yes. And <laughs> you know, when um, there was a press conference called, um, and I think it was for the 52 paper, it was held at the Royal College of Physicians, and it said that the then uh, Minister for Health smoked all the way through the press conference while he was making the announcement. Even more bizarre, it was held at the Royal College of Physicians and they had ashtrays there yeah, for the, 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 the announcers and the journalists and everybody else to use. We've moved on so far um, from that kind of place that um, it seems now inconceivable that you'd find an ashtray in the Royal mm. College of Physicians or in a university room like this. But um, you... Um, you, our progress in some of these other arenas has been far less um, has gone far less further mm. and there's still a considerable way to go uh, on food, on diet, on exercise, on obesity and alcohol yeah. and so on. And I want to ask you about that. I want to ask about the, um, the similarities between the smoking narrative and, and the upcoming obesity narrative because that's been in the, in the, the evidence and and um, you know public understanding of weight and all that type of stuff that's all mm-hmm. been coming out the last 15 20 years or so but before i do that i just want to come back to something that i, I really liked um, because i think it's it's important that that you've lived got through this 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 you've lived through uh, a piece of work that not many other people do and you mentioned that you alluded to it there a moment ago and that was something that you said about um 
evidence-based medicine meeting democracy. I think it was in a paper that you wrote. And, and, and actually, I think it was actually quite a recent paper. What's but, it? Um, I, I'm going to read this because I really liked it. Um, this is this is something that was said in the paper. Councils don't like being... This is about the the move from the NHS into the um, local, local authorities, authorities, which I was I was in one of those teams as we yeah. moved over, uh, watching that all happen. But this is the quote. It was, councils don't like being told what to do. They don't like dicta, and whereas the NHS might be able to say through its hierarchy of command and control, nicer said... You can't tell a local authority to do that. They say, well, thank you for your opinion. We'll weigh it up carefully and we'll do what our voters tell us. Welcome to democracy. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really beautiful <laughs> little little piece of prose that describes what it was like moving from an NHS organisation yeah. into a, a council. I think that's a quotation from one of the people that we interviewed, or part of a quotation. Yeah. Um, well, this, is, this points to something I think that's at the heart of all of this, um, which is that you cannot tell people what to do um, and that's true whether it's a smoker or someone who you know, one might see as overweight or whether it's a council mm-hmm. because we live in a democracy um, and interestingly local authorities are um, you know, they guard their um, local understanding of their democratic rights very very closely they're they're fiercely independent organizations mm. even when a council is controlled by the same political party as that as in control in westminster they will still see themselves as you know independent from central mm. government mm. control and that's a tradition that goes right back um in english society to at least the time of the elizabethans so it's deeply ingrained in our political structures and it's a good thing um and if you are in, this, in, the, in the business of science, to simply imagine that because you've done the trial well and because the results are compelling and because the science is as good as it can be, that will in itself change things on its own. Mm. I mean, you're seriously deluded. Um, it's a much more gradual process and a much more complicated process. And I, for one, thought the pushback, even when it was in the newspapers against us at night, I thought that was a good thing, mm. because it's not um, it's it's not a, a, a kind of one way street. It's about um, an, an acknowledgement that ideas have to flow freely in in society, and science is but one part of those ideas, an important part, mm. and a compelling part, and a helpful part in in many ways, but. You know, you have to be um, ready to muck in, as it were. And I think it's one. Of, it's, it's very interesting to me, you know, having worked in with central government and in a in an organisation like Nice, and also in universities. And it's a lot of academics are kind of reluctant, it seems to me, to go and mix it in those sorts of. Not all. There are some very mm. um, adept. Um, colleagues who are able to do that and they're very successful as a consequence but it takes time it takes effort it takes um, a willingness to sit down with people who don't agree with you um, and to try and find a way of um, reaching compromise perhaps Mm -hmm. or moving the thing on by baby steps sometimes Um, and that it I can't remember who said this but that politics is the art of the possible the politics of evidence is is also are also um, the art of what is possible, and so even though Dolan Hill demonstrated pretty clearly that smoking mm. will kill you, mm. there wasn't a chance that the government in 1952 could have done, would have done, would have even entertained doing the things that are necessary to protect people from that kind of exposure. So, although 40, 50, 60 years sounds like a long time. Um, in the case of smoking, not only do I think it will take even longer in the case of diet, food, nutrition, obesity, and so on, um, but I also think you have to be prepared for that. Um, I, I've always said to my public health students, you know, two things. One, don't go into public health if you want a quiet life, <laughs> because you won't get one. Mm-hmm. And second, don't expect to find the cure for obesity next week because mm. it, it just doesn't work like that. It's a long, slow, arduous process um, which takes generations or decades. Um, and yeah. that's really an important lesson 
and evidence-based medicine, evidence-based public health is but one part of that uh, mix. I think that's a really good message because, I mean, some of the listeners are from the public health space and uh, some of the discussions that I've had with other guests and obviously with, with my colleagues at Busybodies where, where we sort of do behaviour change and weight management um, and my ex-colleagues at PHE, we, we all, it's, everything's moving towards this sort of whole systems approach um, now. But one of the one of the one of the things that I took from the move from the NHS into the the uh, local authority was the difference in what the job entailed. So, in the NHS, a lot more was about evidence because it was not. I'm not saying received wisdom from Nice or from other you know uh, you know academic bodies, but it was there was a hierarchy of information that we, we, we all trusted, whereas when we were in the local authorities, I, didn't, I wasn't at a level where I felt that political sort of, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll, we'll now do what our voters want, thank you very much type sort of thing. It didn't change that much, but it wasn't that perceptible to me. However, I was passionate about public health, I am passionate about public health, passionate about obesity, and that was the field I was working in. Now, if I, if I wanted to do that now, and go into public health, into obesity, and work in a local authority, a lot of what that would be about would be about health needs assessment type work and then commissioning mm-hmm. um, and then contract management. And mm-hmm. that, that isn't something that someone like me who would be passionate about the, the obesity and, and interventions, whether that was prevention, whether that was upstream type stuff or a range of things or on the ground intervention, that wouldn't appeal to someone like me. So I wouldn't go into obesity today because mm-hmm. it, it looking at the roots into it, they don't look compelling even though i've got a huge passion for it yeah and i wonder what you thought about what you know how how would people what types of people go into public health now like you're 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 lecturing students now who are going into public health what what do they want from their careers Uh, here in cambridge they want exactly the same that the students i lectured to in glasgow 45 40 years ago Mm. they want to change things for the better and to improve population health and to reduce the kinds of suffering that are, un, in a sense, unnecessary or are preventable. So they're looking for the same things. They're just as passionate as you are, um, but they have to work in a in certainly in the local authority context in a more constrained way. Um, it was very interesting when the transition was proposed because a lot of people, and actually myself included, thought. You know, local authorities have got a much better ear for their populations than an unelected and unaccountable um, NHS trust. Mm. Um, but um, they do have the ear of that population in a, in a way that doesn't necessarily always accord with the way the evidence mm. sits. And um, so that makes it more problematic. But you're also right, that kind of structure of the way the delivery of services are now managed, the contracting process, the commissioning process and so on, um, is some way distant from the kinds of direct interventions that were possible mm. in a local in a local um, primary care trust uh, that, that it could do. And the version of public health we have now in local authorities is quite some way distant from the pre-1974 local authorities that were responsible for public health with really the local, then the um, medical officer of health, um, being an independent uh, member of the uh, council who could tell the council if they were doing things which were damaging the health of the population and did and were not, you know, part of the management team in the way that um, Mm. directors of public health are now brought into the system. So I think that the, the organisational structures look to me from outside, as I worked on the inside, but look to me from the outside um, to be more constraining um, than the, um, the ways things had worked either in the NHS prior to the transition and certainly the kinds of local authority structures in public health which existed before 1974 when it was all moved then over into the NHS. Um, I think there's another problem, though, that, you know, it's is significant here, and that is um, the move into local authorities coincided with huge cuts to local authority budgets. Mm. And while the public health budgets were protected for a little while, they're not now, really. And so the amount of resource available to deliver public health has been significantly cut back. Um, and that 
you know, one it's hard to know had there been the same kind of resource or an increasing resource available mm. at local authorities, mm. whether it would be different. I suspect it might have been. And what we might really be seeing is not so much people's um, enthusiasm being whittled away, but rather they're, they're doing the best they can in a highly, not just managerially or organisationally constrained environment, but in an environment that's financially very constrained yeah. too. Um, so it, it's, it's hard to know what we're really looking at here yeah. when we think about it. Yeah, okay, that's great. I, I, so I wanna, uh, what, what I want to come back to is um, this notion that you were a sociologist first mm-hmm. because I, I, I think sociology was one, a, a key turning point. I've talked about it in, in other episodes of this, this show with other people before where sociology was something I wasn't interested in at all. Old white people talking bollocks as far as I could see like <laughs> I but mm, considered view yes no at, at the time <laughs> I was young and, and in my undergraduate I saw it as something that just didn't mean it didn't mean anything to me because I didn't really have any experience to apply it to mm-hmm. and I think when I did my master's I um I was running obesity programs at the time mm-hmm. and all of a sudden sociology made a lot more sense to me and I, I sort of had an epiphany over the this the theory of habitus that was the big yep. thing that sort of picked me up and, and I ended up doing a, my, my dissertation in identity based on habitus and Jungian archetypes actually mm-hmm. in, in the end Goodness. Um, yeah I know it was a really strange but it, but I loved doing it and it was mm-hmm. really applied to what, what I was doing at the time in my work um, and I really feel like there is a whole there's a whole swathe of, of information that could be used in the public health space that hasn't been because the language hasn't sort of really made its way into the public health sphere in the same way that say the psychology the psychological sciences they have got a sort of common language yep. with health whereas i don't feel like sociology has and nope. it was at a sociology conference that i saw you speak and asked you to come on the show and and in that you know in that conference whilst i was sort of talking to some of the other people there and i was sitting in the seminars they, they sounded like they were quite persecuted by the fact they weren't involved in these conversations, but it felt to me like they didn't have the the nomenclature and the, that sort of common language to be able to meaningfully interact. I don't know what you think about that because you're from that background. Yeah, there are several things I, I would say in response to that. The first is his, historical. Um, if you have a look at the work which was done in the early early parts of the 19th century, mid-19th century, by public health reformers. Um, And in the United Kingdom, the people I'm thinking of would be, for example, William Duncan in Liverpool, uh, the first medical officer of health there, William Tennant Gairdner, who was the first medical officer of health in Glasgow a few years later. If you read what they had to say, they clearly have a social vision And they have an understanding that um, the health of the populations as they see it are very importantly driven by the social conditions in which people are living. And it's the filth, the squalor, the poverty, the hunger, um, which are very tangible. uh, And they write very um, eloquently about those things and fought very hard um, to bring that to the attention of a broader commerce of ideas in Victorian Britain. On the continent, Rudolf Virchow um, in Germany has much the same kind of um, approach um, to his vision of public health and public health as politics and health as politics and so on. And we find examples of reformers in Holland, uh, United States, similarly with this social vision. So in other words, what they have is a notion that the health of the public um, is about the health of the environment, if you like, um, and that you cannot separate the fact that you've got an outbreak of TB um, or of um, infectious disease, other kinds of infectious disease, um, in a population from the, the way people live their lives. Now, what then happens, very interestingly, um, is that um, through the course of the century, um, medical science advances, and in particular, in this context anyway, the pursuit of cholera, which to the Victorians was an unfathomable, unfathomable um, scourge. 
because you know Victorian Britain was the most advanced society in the world at its time, rich, powerful, an empire stretching around the entire globe, yet they couldn't conquer cholera. Mm. Um, they just it would come and it would would um, do its damage in the population. It would spread, and they they they, they felt pretty helpless um, in in public health terms and political terms to do anything about it. By the end of the century, of course, um, Rudolf Koch in Europe had identified the um, bacteria. Um, and this is a real turning point because the um, understanding that there is something in the water that you can see that causes the disease means that if you can isolate that germ um, from the population, you will keep them disease free. Coincidentally, during that period that the um, microbiologists were doing their stuff, um, engineers were doing their stuff too, and notably in Great Britain, uh, Sir Joseph Bazalgette and the building of the sewer and clean water system for London, which was an extraordinary um, engineering achievement. So by the end of the century, um, Londoners had clean water and a safe sewage system. Now those two ideas come together. Um, germ solution, sewers and drains and all of that. Actually, they developed quite separately. Mm. And indeed, Bazalgette was a miasmarist. He thought that cholera was in the air, um, and as did Florence Nightingale. And a whole lot of um, reformers of the 19th century were quite wrong mm. um, on the idea of waterborne disease. But in the public's mind, the notion that you, you, if you could only identify the pathogen, a solution is in your grasp... Um, becomes fixed, the pathogenic paradigm. And of course what that means is the public health vision focuses down and down and down and down and away from the broader oh, yeah. social environment mm -hmm. to the microbiological. Mm -hmm. um, and not surprisingly, by the time you get to the early 20th century, other great advances in clinical medicine and other discoveries of all sorts of microorganisms and they're linked directly to disease, it looks like that's where the answer lies. So what you see, even in Gairdner, the Glasgow uh, MOH, who publishes lectures um, over several editions, if you read successive editions of them, the social begins to disappear. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And his, his vision of the social world affecting health becomes much more focused on the, the microbiology mm -hmm. um, of causation. And oddly, um, and perhaps paradoxically, the discovery of the link to 50-odd years later, um, cigarette smoke to lung cancer, looks like another, you know, gosh, here we've got a pathogen we can identify operating at the individual level, and therefore, <clears throat> that's what we need to focus on, the causes of this. And, of course, up since then, other disease, exercise and heart disease and alcohol and liver disease and so on. Now, all of that pushes public health away from this social vision, um, this social environmental understanding of health. Even though most public health doctors would say that they are population doctors, the methodology the epistemology even of what they do is driven by individuals yeah. and individual disease processes rather than dynamic social processes. Those dynamic social processes are often acknowledged. Um, they talk about the wider determinants and all this sort of language. But in reality, it remains fixated on the individual. Now, Interestingly, of course, so you have medical science and its microbiology, public health moving that way. Psychology has always been about individuals, individual psyches, individual brains, individual behaviours and all that kind of thing. So it's not surprising that there's a very nice match between psychology and, and public health and medicine because they operate with the same um, notion of the individual as the point of analysis. Sociology, meanwhile, with its focus on populations and communities and neighbourhoods and so on, seems some way distant from that. And during the course of the, um, the 20th century, I think that chasm opened still further. And in the end, the languages are so different mm -hmm. that, um, and this is the second strand of my argument, that sociology has found it increasingly difficult to engage with what's been a very successful science. You see, 
I'm, I'm being kind of critical at a philosophical level here, but one cannot take away the benefits of the discoveries about smoking or cholera or exercise and all these other things. They're real and they've delivered tangible benefits. So if you're over in the other camp in sociology saying, well, you know, you're missing the population side of things, it's a bit of a voice that's almost crying in the wilderness. And in general, I, I my own sense... Uh, as a member of the tribe, so to speak, is that, you know, as a whole, the tribe hasn't done very much to try and engage with um, the um, the world of public health in quite the way that um, it might have been able to do. I think, too, however, and this is a however, um, times are a-changing, um, by which I mean the most recent discoveries in microbiology, by which I mean epigenetics and metabolomics, are arguing a very interesting and different epistemology because, in essence, they're arguing that the social is absolutely important, um, that the processes that are going on in these, um, in these epigenetic and other metabolomic processes... Can I just stop you and ask you what metabolomic is? I don't know, I know what that is. Um, it's, it, it's, a, it's a class of... Um, types of investigation which is interested in all the genetic marks um, in in the body and the way that broadly speaking social exposures can affect them you can read off almost a timeline of life from some of the um, these big data and it, it relies on big data mm-hmm. it's and all of a sudden the, the focus has moved from individuals and individual molecules to big data yeah. on huge populations and these high throughput type studies and the discovery um, that the the social world is absolutely critical mm. you know from the cup of tea you had 10 minutes ago to actually your grandmother's health during her pregnancy with your mother are critical determinants of your um, biology and that's that's moving things you know way 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 different place to germ theory and the old pathogenic paradigm there's a writer called um, Maurizio Maloney who in a recent book has argued we this this shift um, is a shift back to almost the old humoral theories because medicine before the 19th century um, in the way that I said, Gairdner and Duncan and others, certainly in the post-Hippocrates kind of era, all the way through the millennium, Middle Ages, medieval, you know, the notion that what your body was was a reflection of the external environment, the humours in the external environment, was taken as red. That was all put to one side with molecular biology and germ theory and all that kind of thing. Well, what Maloney suggests uh, is that actually the modern... The post-epigenetic world, um, post-genetic world, um, means that that's all got to be revisited. Not, we won't go back to the humours, but the notion that we are the world in which we live um, and the dynamic nature of the things going on between us seems to me to be, um, well, his argument anyway, which I find very uh, interesting um, and compelling, is that we would have to rethink um, in a sense, almost the very nature of medicine, mm-hmm. or remember what those pioneers like Gairdner and Duncan knew intuitively by walking the streets of Liverpool and Glasgow. And is that, is that something to do with the tangibility of the information coming out of the more, you know, the germ theory style, style of um, approach rather than the sociological side? Because it's more obvious, It's you can see it. Like that thing that you said about you can see something in the water and if you can isolate that mm-hmm. then you know there's there's something tangible about that versus the sort of ethereal nature or, or well that's right i think it does um i think that these um new um the, the new microbiology if i can call it that um with its in with its intuitive understanding of the importance of the social reopens the potential for dialogue mm-hmm. there's a risk here mind you um for sociology, because if it ignores it, the biologist will invent a kind of cod sociology, which is very dangerous. Can sound very dangerously like eugenics, um, and very dangerously like determinism, um, which is not, I think, where it should go. But if sociology 
um, embraces the, um, the interesting things that come out of all of this and provides the sociological understanding of that link between the biological and the social. Mm. Um, and you mentioned habitus. Now, that's a mm. very interesting... I mean, Pierre Bourdieu, uh, as his work, I think, he's one of the few sociologists who, are, who tried to theorise that, what he called the inscription... Mm. Um, of the social world onto the body um, in these processes of habitus. And habitus is actually probably one of the concepts that will be most helpful as a starting point for that connection, I think. I think so. I, I just think, why is it not more ubiquitous? I, I think it's in the way it's been described, because even as an enthusiast, I, I actually have got a Pierre Bourdieu T-shirt they bought me as a joke at work, and I nearly <laughs> wore it today in honour of, of coming and interviewing you. Um, but I decided against it. Uh, I, um, but the... The language is so hard to read. I mean, probably not for you now, but even as a, I'm not an academic, but as an enthusiast of the real and someone who can see that the tangible value of using this in the real world, the the language is so hard. It's such hard work. Um, there's there's a couple of things I think communicate it reasonably well. If you can be bothered to get your head around the structuring structure that continues mm -hmm. to structure. That, that that actually goes that that goes some way to sort of explaining, you know, the the nature of you know being a product of your environment mm -hmm. and subconsciously and consciously sort of yep. engaging with that environment mm -hmm. that way. But the the other one is the the one I talk about the most I think in the way we describe this when we're training our staff or when we're talking about this in public is is that it it, it is the thing that is informing your tastes preferences and expectations both yep. consciously and subconsciously. Yep, and I think that. You can go into lots more detail about it, and it is a fascinating thing to go into detail with, and going into Foucault and whoever else is, you know, in, in that in that field, and to use the word field in that. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Case. Yes, but but the Very the opposite. the yeah, it's an accident. <laughs> but but the the um, if, if you can understand that, then I think you can actually sort of get into because I I come I come down to an intervention level, whether it's um, a top down approach that ultimately ends up in interacting with someone at some level whether yeah. it's by restricting choices because it you know things are no longer available in, in an environment or or if it's designing an environment someone or, or if it's a direct intervention with someone i think if you take that view that their taste preferences and expectations are a product of where they grew up who they grew up with and mm -hmm. you know their aspiration as well is, is linked into that and that has an impact on what yep. they think is possible those are the things that i think are really important in in helping someone on the ground to change the course of um, their, their life. And if you can do that in by one degree at, at one moment in time, that can actually have a huge impact over mm -hmm. the course of mm -hmm. a lifetime. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've got a point there other than No, that. you That's do, that. you do. And um, the idea, as you've just expressed it, is, is so clear and, you know, is, my granny knew that actually. And she certainly had never heard of Bourdieu. But more seriously, um, although it's, it's so obvious, it's almost hidden in plain sight. Mm -hmm. Because our science, our epidemiology, our microbiology, the old microbiology anyway, didn't want to focus on that. It was focusing on a different set of problems. Um, and so the pursuit was of you know, the biological, the sub-biological, the sub-molecular, and so on and so forth sometimes with some very important beneficial consequences. I think it's always worth saying that. But it, it takes away, um, it builds a wall so that the other things that are there remain hidden in plain sight um, and are not part of the equation. You're right, Bourdieu is difficult to read. I'm never sure whether that's because of the translator or the original French. I've never read it. I can't read the original French. Um, but it's certainly not... Um, you know, airport reading. No, but, I mean, equally, in the library round the corner, open up a genetics um, peer review and tell me how easy that's to it's read. True, yeah. You know, it's simply not the case that it's only sociology um, that has a difficult language. It has a technical language because it's describing technically tricky things, as does microbiology, as does subatomic physics, as mm. does brain surgery. And these things are not written... Um, for someone sitting in an airport waiting for their plane, I was looking for a bit of. Ent they're not entertainment; yeah. they are serious 
scientific and academic pieces of work. But then you have the translation problem. And I think both the natural sciences, the medical sciences and the social sciences all have a problem mm. about translating it in such a way that um, it, it is seen as important and legitimate and above all else helpful um, in trying to do the things that you want to do. Um, so difficult, yes, but what we need are the translators who can then bring those ideas into plain sight so that people can actually see them um, and understand them and, 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 and work with them. Mm. One of the lessons actually uh, <laughs> that I, I learned pretty early on in the days of working in, with government was that um, you could use sociolo sociological ideas very effectively as long as you didn't say they were sociological. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. you know, that would often set up kind of antibodies immediately. Right. Um, so, the, and if you look carefully in some of the nice guidelines, you'll find references to Habermas, you'll find references to Giddens, you'll find references, I think, even to Bourdieu. Um, but Which one? I've read most of them, but I can't... I, can't I think, think it's the uh, coronary heart disease one, actually. Oh, okay. But, um, there's, there's certainly references to mainstream sociological theory to be found in those documents. But the documents are not full of text about the theory, but rather the, no the notion of, say, for example, action and structure interacting with each other to produce certain types of effects is to be found there. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in a way that I hope is accessible. Um, but if you start trying to come at the problem as well, I'm a sociologist and I'm going to tell you how I think, you're not going to change anybody. Um, no. It's I've got some ideas here that are helpful um, if we frame the problem in this particular kind of way. Um, and that can be a very effective way of bringing these ideas into um, clear and present um, focus. And so while you're, you're in the tribe, mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a fan of the tribe, say, um, of the sociology tribe. So I can't say... Come on, sociologists, how are you going to do what, what Mike's just said there? How are you going to bring what you know to this field in a way that doesn't sort of turn people off straight away? How, how do people approach this? How do they do it? Um, well, actually, it takes hard work. I don't think you do it by publishing peer-reviewed papers. Mm -hmm. You do it by engaging directly with people. Um, shoe leather um, conversations, you know, going round and yeah. talking to people. That's how it's done. Um, and it's done by um, getting trust um, so that w what you're saying is becomes tr as a trusted source of um, evidence or ideas and uh, presenting them in such a way that they're not seen to be um, simply a critique of the world. I mean, sociology is very good at critiquing the world, but, you know, if you're trying... You know, it was Marx actually said that the first task is to uh, criticise, the second task is to change, and you don't change by criticising, actually. You change by working with and working with what's politically possible. Marx didn't say that, no. but that seems to me to be a much more workable strategy um, in trying to work with these ideas at... Um, at that kind of level. Yeah. Okay, that's fantastic. I, I really enjoyed going into that level of depth. Obviously, that wasn't in any of the questions that I sent over ahead no, of wasn't. time, but that's what I love about doing this this show. Um, but I do want to come back to a couple of big ideas. Um, the first one, actually, I want to go back a little bit to what you're doing now, because we talked up to NICE, mm -hmm. and we're, we're meeting... Uh, I mean, technically, you're retired. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, you're not retired fully, um, <laughs> because we're sitting in an office in a university. So... Tell us a bit about what you're doing now and really about how behavioural science or behaviour change is built into that role. I retired from NICE in December 2014 um, and took up a post as what was called a fellow commoner at St John's College in Cambridge, which meant that for a period of time anyway, I had the privileges of a fellow, including residents, but they didn't pay me anything. Um, oh. But they provided... Um, accommodation and, and all the lovely facilities that go with that. That was combined with um, a visiting fellowship here at the Institute of Public Health. Um, so I'm sort of emeritus, I suppose, though not formally, as I'm not formally a member of Cambridge University tenured staff. Um, so 
um, I get involved with a series of research, a number of research projects here in Cambridge University in the Institute of Public Health. Um, I do some teaching, um, both to public health students and um, undergraduate medical students. Um, I work with um, colleagues who are engaging with the world of politics and policy making and uh, offer various views and thoughts of the kind that we're talking about here um, to them. In addition to that, I've got a series of collaboration, collaborative projects uh, with colleagues at the University of Edinburgh, University of Manchester, UCL in London, University of Kent. Um, and that's been a great privilege because the opportunity to do the sorts of things that when you are frontline NHS, or at least frontline politics of the NHS in NICE, you can't do. And I suppose in the years I was at NICE and at the Health Development Agency, there were a number of um, questions uh, relating to health-related behaviour change, relating to health inequalities, um, relating to the application of the evidence-based approach, which one could just never had time to explore. Um, and so when I retired, it was my uh, plan to try and get the opportunity to do that. And of course, I got to know colleagues all around the country through my work at NICE. And um, in the end, Cambridge made me that offer for the, um, the fellowship. And, you know, that's been a fantastic platform for me to explore these things that I couldn't explore in detail before. And also to explore them without, you know, I'm, I'm not a crown servant anymore. So, um, you know, I can explore them without needing to um, feel that I have to be, um, have all my political antennae open about mm -hmm. how ministers might feel about what we're saying or doing, um, uh, as it were. So that's what I'm doing now. And, and on a day-to-day, -day, are you lecturing as well, or are you just... I do a little bit of lecturing, not yeah. very much. Um, I, I still love lecturing, but um, um, it, um, I, I just contribute to various courses and right, help right. out. Okay, that's great. And, and so, I mean, the name of the, the podcast here is, is um, Real World Behavioural Science. So mm -hmm. do, does, does what you do now include a lot of that yeah, it does. Kind of stuff? So I mean, one of the first uh, groups that I worked with um, were Theresa Marteau's um, mm -hmm. policy unit on, um, on um, choice architecture and nudge theory. And we, um, we had... Um, money from the Department of Health, pardon me, money from the Department of Health to carry out a series of studies, um, and I was involved in some of those, not all of them. It's been a very productive um, unit based here in this building, and um, it produced um, a great number of papers. But it was very interesting to um, take on the question of nudge, because um, it was a bit of a political. Um, it was a very popular political term back in the day anyway mm -hmm. and it seemed to offer um, a way of doing behavior change in a in a less intrusive kind of way and um, we've explored a variety of um, elements around that and the group continues to do so um, and I think we've learned a, a great deal indeed now about um, how that type of um, approach works, where it is helpful, um, what it can achieve, what it can't achieve. Uh, and it's certainly not the be-all and end-all. But what was terribly important about it, I think, was that... Okay, and I'm deliberately cutting it there, because uh, obviously Mike's just about to give a key piece of insight. So uh, what well, I'm calling that a cliffhanger for you to come back on Friday and listen to part two. But I just wanted to say thanks again to Mike there for uh, what I think is a fascinating show. I, I loved the fact that he just went into a history of public health, which was really articulate uh, and uh, clear. And... Um, gives an idea about how we've gone from the social into the medical and now we're sort of moving back towards the social uh, models of health um, and obviously hearing all of his experience when he was in NICE as well as all the academic work that Mike's been involved in over the last uh, few decades. Um, so the next part of the special, part two of the special is coming out on Friday this week and in, and in that special that's where, where uh, our discussion moves more towards the behavioural science and the behaviour change stuff. That's where we move into the choice architecture discussion. Mike, again, in an offhand way, ends up describing the time that he had 
dinner with Daniel Kahneman uh, whilst at a dinner honouring Daniel's wife, which is just a great offhand story. Um, he describes some of the work that he did with Michael Marmot and the World Health Organisation. Uh, he also goes into detail about the whole systems approach that we're seeing come through in the public health space now and how, how we need to make sure that, that, has, uh, that, that we do more than just talk the talk and that we actually walk the walk in that regard. Um, and then lastly, he goes into some of the detail on how NICE guidance gets produced and what it's meant to be used for and sometimes how that's used uh, incorrectly in the public health industry. And lastly, he talks about the academic work that's been going on in the UK and how we're sort of punching well above our weight as a country in terms of producing some of the best available evidence, but that that's not necessarily used um, by politicians at the moment. So that's an interesting part of the discussion that we had. Uh, and then finally, we, we touch on inequalities and how we should... Uh, structure our systems to be able to sort of reduce inequalities so that that show will come out on friday i hope you i hope you download that one enjoy it uh, and in the meantime have a great week